Well, as Asher already mentioned, a little later in our service, we'll get to partake of the Lord's Supper together. We'll also sing some more songs together, but first we want to open God's Word together. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts. And as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about John Bunyan, that famous Puritan preacher the author of the classic Pilgrim's Progress. In England in the 1660s, the free preaching of the gospel was becoming illegal. That is, if a preacher or pastor was not ordained in the Church of England and serving in one of those churches, his preaching could be illegal. It wasn't until 1662 precisely that it was law, that it was illegal, but in 1660 and 61, preaching without a license was risky. And in 1660, John Bunyan was arrested and jailed for preaching in public without a license, and he spent the next 12 years in a Bedford jail. Left at home was his wife and four children. The oldest daughter was blind. The authorities told Bunyan that if he only verbally promised to not preach in public, that he could go home that day. And he refused, despite the pain of being away from his family. He wrote, the parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet should I be taken away from them, especially my poor blind child who lay near to my heart than all Besides, oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under. It would break my heart to pieces. In my office, I have a sketch of Bunyan saying goodbye to his blind daughter. And it's, uh, it's moving. It's moving to read of that. It's moving to see that sketch. And yet, from John Bunyan's experience in jail we have a treasure trove of writings still in print today. We have 58 different works in all by John Bunyan. He wrote and wrote and wrote. He wrote prison meditations in 1663 when he thought that his execution was imminent and he was on the brink of despair. At times he wrote things not just for the outside world, simply for himself, simply to keep himself busy, and simply to keep his thoughts in line, like Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about conversion and the Christian life. The lead character, Christian, is freed from his burden of sin and then makes his way to the celestial city representing heaven. After the Bible... Pilgrim's Progress is the world's best-selling book. It's translated into 200 different languages. If you haven't read it, read it as soon as possible. 
If you have young children, read Dangerous Journey. It's just a simplified, shorter, and a little smoother English version of it. George Whitfield said of Pilgrim's Progress, it smells of the prison. It was written when the author was confined in the Bedford jail. And ministers never write or preach so well as when under the cross. Oh, how God has used Pilgrim's Progress through the centuries. I mean, the stories are legion and legendary, and we could cite them all morning. But because Pilgrim's Progress has been used so mightily by God, we can say, thank God for John Bunyan's time in jail. Well, today I'd like to direct your attention once again to that other imprisoned preacher who stayed quite busy during his imprisonment and was used even more than John Bunyan by the Lord. We saw last week at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is in prison awaiting trial before Caesar in Rome. But he is busy proclaiming the gospel and teaching freely. Look at the last two verses of the book of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now remember, if you were with us last week, we said this is kind of an ending without an ending. I mean, it functions like a to-be-continued, because we know that there's more to the story with the Apostle Paul and with the church and even today. It just keeps going and going. The story of the spread of the gospel is being written even today, one sermon at a time, one prayer at a time, one gospel conversation at a time, one conversion at a time. We're living in the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, which just dated me, didn't it? Paul Harvey. Raise your hand if you know who that is. Oh, okay. That's pretty good. I'm not that old. Well, there's another sense in which there's more to the story, to the ending of the book of Acts. Because during this two-year imprisonment in Rome, Paul wrote four different letters, at least four that are in our Bibles. Certainly he wrote more. Well, at least we suspect, but we don't have those and they're not in our Bibles. So today I want us to look again just a little bit at the last couple of verses of Acts, but then we're going to sort of x-ray what's going on inside that house arrest that Paul's under by going to the letters that he wrote at the same time. By going to those letters, we can see what else is going on, what's on his mind, what's his perspective, how does he think, how is he teaching other people? You can think of it in terms of an open door and a busy pen. The ending of Acts is an open door, Paul's spoken ministry. And these, past, or these prison epistles, as they're sometimes called, are a busy pen showing us Paul's written ministry at the same time. So let's consider this week Again, once more, this open door at the end of the book of Acts. Again, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. 
though he's under arrest, there's literally an open door here. I mean, he can't go anywhere. He's chained to a, a, a guard at all times. But anyone can come to him. The, the door is wide open. It's always unlocked. The welcome mat is always out. And people are coming and going. And Paul is preaching and teaching. This means there's figuratively an open door here. An open door for the gospel. Paul spoke like that a number of times, like in 1 Corinthians 16, when he said, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. An open door means an opportunity to speak. Though he writes 2 Timothy much later at another imprisonment, the words couldn't be more true for this moment as well here. In 2 Timothy 2.9, Paul says, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. He's freely proclaiming and teaching, which, by the way, I think means a twofold ministry of the word. He is proclaiming what we call evangelizing, and he is teaching what we tend to call discipleship. He is talking to unbelievers, and he is talking to Christians. Luke, more than once in the book of Acts, has spoken of that twofold ministry to unbelievers and to believers. But whatever open door was available to Paul, he took it. Hasn't that been the case time and time again in the book of Acts? Whatever context or circumstances, he always did the same thing. It always had to do with the word and the word going to people. Sometimes to non-Christians, sometimes to Christians. Sometimes on a ship, sometimes in the marketplace, sometimes in a Jewish synagogue, sometimes before rulers and judges, sometimes locked up like this. I wonder how you and I would talk about a two-year house arrest in a foreign city for crimes we didn't commit, facing a trial before the highest court with the real possibility of execution. Just put yourself in those circumstances. Ask yourself, as I rather painfully asked myself this week. What would I be doing under such circumstances? What would my perspective be on my circumstances? What would someone write in a sentence or two about what I was doing and what I thought? And if I wrote to anyone under these circumstances, what would I write? Well, Paul was so tenaciously focused on the gospel and on the Lord and on the ministry. None of us in this room will probably ever match Paul's zeal and tenacity. He was a special cat. But every Christian will be given commensurate comfort for the trial they find themselves in. This is 2 Corinthians 1, which actually says you get more than enough comfort than you need for any given trial. Two, keep in mind, every Christian, though not the Apostle Paul, should strive, even now, to cultivate the love and the habits and the instincts that would do well under more difficult circumstances than we currently know. 
And number three, every Christian should be aware and eager of the open doors that are given to them right now. Learn from the Apostle Paul. If it's open a crack, he'll take it. Now, before we leave Acts behind and look to these prison epistles, let me take a couple of minutes to tell you the story of what came after Acts, at least for Paul. Remember, Acts ends and Paul's in prison. And again, we say Luke has purposes for that kind of ending. But we do wonder, I hope you do, how did it really end for Paul? What comes after Acts? And with a little bit of literary and historical investigation, we can piece together the following. It stands to reason that Paul did make his defense before Caesar. Remember, the angel promised Paul on a ship in Acts 27, you will stand before Caesar. He got a promise before that, you will get to Rome. We know that one was fulfilled. We suspect the angel wasn't lying or misguided when he told Paul, you will stand before Caesar. Paul seems to have expected, even before his trial, that his trial would end in his release. So in Philemon, verse 22, one of these prison epistles, he says, prepare a guest room for me. That's not a man certain he's going to die. Even more clear is that 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy are later letters that show Paul out and about, in the case of 1 Timothy and Titus, and back in jail, later again, in the case of 2 Timothy. So between Paul's first imprisonment in Acts 28 and Paul's last imprisonment represented in 2 Timothy, we can surmise that Paul was out and about and doing ministry, and he probably went to Spain, as he twice told the Roman Christians that was his plan, to go to Spain. And by the way, early church history affirms all this. Eusebius, writing in 320, said Paul was sent bound to Rome, Aristarchus was with him, and Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, brought his history to a close at this point after stating that Paul spent two whole years at Rome as a prisoner at large and preached the word of God without restraint. Thus, after he had made his defense, it is said that the apostle was sent again upon, was sent again upon the ministry of preaching and that upon coming to the city a second time, he suffered martyrdom. It's not just a writer in 320, though. In the year 90, Clement wrote to the Romans, referring to Paul, and he said, after preaching both in the East and the West, Paul gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having come to the extreme limit of the West, which is almost certainly Spain. Then he suffered martyrdom. So that's what's coming for Paul after Acts. He gets out. He has two years of fruitful ministry. He's arrested again, and there he'll die. He won't experience the, the unending cycle of rescues and close calls and escapes. That's been the case thus far in Acts, but it won't keep going. Eventually, there's an end, as there is for all of us. But back to the jail, back to his house arrest in Rome for those two years. 
He not only welcomed any visitor that would come and gave them the word, however much they needed. He wrote to others. So let's consider now the busy pen, the prison epistles. That's what Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are sometimes called the prison epistles because they were written at the same time from this Roman imprisonment. And like Pilgrim's Progress, which smells like the prison, as Whitfield said, many biblical scholars have attested to Paul's prison letters having, having a special gravity and joy to them. John Stott says these prison letters set forth more powerfully than anywhere else the supreme, sovereign, undisputed, and unrivaled lordship of Jesus Christ. Was it not through his very confinement that his eyes were opened to see the victory of Christ and the fullness of love and the power and freedom which is given to those who belong to Christ? His prison letters breathe an atmosphere of joy, peace, patience, and contentment. As a result of his two years in Rome, he has bequeathed to posterity in his four prison letters an even richer spiritual legacy. Probably Paul neither knew nor understood this at the time, but we do. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians... Our letters written to churches, Philemon was written to an individual. And all this comes out of the history earlier in the book of Acts. These Christians came out of Paul's ministry and churches were formed. In Acts 16, Paul was in Philippi. A few people got saved and eventually there's a, a church, one of Paul's greatest supports. In Acts 19, Paul is in the city of Ephesus where he actually stayed for a total of three years and saw a very healthy and solid church come to be there. And it was while Paul was in Ephesus that a guy named Epaphras came from a neighboring city, Colossae, and he heard the gospel there in Ephesus. He was saved. He brought the gospel back to Colossae, his hometown. A church then was born. And along, of, along with all this, another resident of Colossae also was in Ephesus, also heard Paul preach the gospel, also got saved, and he came back and was part of the Colossian church. In fact, it met in his home. His name is Philemon. So Colossians is a letter written to a whole church. Philemon is a letter written to one individual of that very church. Well, now in the time that I have left, I want to suggest and point out to you seven different themes in the prison epistles. Seven different themes. This will be a bit unusual for us. We don't usually try to tackle one book of the Bible on a Sunday, let alone four books of the Bible in the second half of a sermon. But that's exactly what I'm going to try to do today. We just have to go about it a little differently than usual. So rather than read the books all the way through, which we could do, but we won't, I'll just mention some themes, and then I'll point you to some passages within these prison epistles. So now, turn somewhere close to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We'll be doing a lot of flipping through our Bibles this morning. Some of you grew up in a church where you did Bible sword drills. The teacher at the front of the class would announce a passage, and then you'd race your friends to see who could get to that passage 
the fastest. Well, we won't race each other this morning, but we will be doing a lot of flipping around and it might feel like those familiar sword drills to some of you. Think of this as an introduction to and even an invitation to these pastoral epistles. So if you're currently not reading someplace in the Bible or you don't have a plan uh, that you're using to get yourself through parts of the Bible, or, or maybe you're coming to an end of one of the Bible's books and you're wondering, what are you going to do next? You just finished the Psalms or you just finished Matthew. Well, consider these epistles. Don't just read them, but reread them. Read all four at whatever pace you want. And when you're done, start over. Do it 10 times. And I bet you $1. I'm serious. I bet you $1. The most I can lose is about 400 bucks. <laughs> I bet you $1 that after reading these four books, the 10th time, you still find joy and insight. And you're glad you did it. And you don't think it's a waste of time. I hope also as we do this little exercise of seven themes in the prison epistles, I hope it helps us read our Bibles a little bit better. The Bible has layers to it. Uh, It's one grand story. and, And yet some parts of it actually overlap. Like we're seeing the end of Acts in that little window there is when Paul wrote these four letters. And so I also hope that our time in the book of Acts, with all of its dramatic narrative and danger and cliffhanger suspense, well, I hope that helps you read these pastoral epistles, which might be familiar to you, with a little bit more of that imagery, with a little bit more of that drama, because that's where they come from. Seven themes all rooted in and related to the gospel because Paul is obsessed with the gospel. He uses that word gospel 16 different times in these letters. The gospel, the the good news, the announcement of Jesus' coming, dying, being raised for the forgiveness of sins, that's the gospel. Paul sees that not only as the most important thing, but the thing that touches everything else. Everything else is in relation to the gospel. And so first, he's praying with the gospel at the root. He's giving prayers that are rooted in the gospel. Paul turns, Paul tells these Christians that he's been praying for them. He tells them what he's been praying for them. And we have a wonderful treasury of great prayers. So turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Let's read one of these prayers. And notice how it's connected to the gospel. Notice how his prayers and his desires for them are built on the gospel. He says in Colossians 1, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Skip to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We'll stop there. You can see Paul is giving thanks to God for their salvation and for the gospel itself. And he's praying that it works itself out in living, in thinking, in conduct, in their relationships. We could do the same kind of exercise looking at the beginning of Ephesians or the beginning of Philippians or really any of his letters which we won't do today. But just know this, that there is a treasure of Pauline prayers, and I honestly don't know of a better way to shape your prayers and enliven and enlarge your prayers than to learn well from Paul's prayers. I know we have the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and who can say anything other than that is the model prayer. But what's unique about Paul's praying is that we have so many different examples of it. So read Paul's prayers. Pray Paul's prayers. Pray like Paul and grow in prayer. Secondly, there's partnership in the gospel. Partnership. While we can rightly draw out some themes that are shared among the four prison epistles, each one does have its own unique emphasis. And for Philippians... It's partnership, partnership. Give you some background of the book of Philippians as you flip over to there, one book. The Philippian church had sent one of their own guys, Epaphroditus, to the apostle Paul with some sort of gift, with some sort of probably financial contribution, certainly to meet his needs while he was in this Roman house arrest. Remember back in Acts, it said he had to pay for his own expenses. He was there at his own expenses. So, so Epaphroditus comes with a gift from the Philippian church. And eventually, Paul writes back to the Philippian church to thank them and to encourage them. Apparently, they were concerned about Paul's imprisonment, maybe even discouraged about his imprisonment. And Paul wants to reassure them. So Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Notice there's prayer as well. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They're partners in the gospel. What it looks like is Philippians 2 verse 25 I've thought it necessary to send to you, send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him back to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. 
So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see how this is about a partnership? How Paul's been provided for and responds with thankfulness? Go to chapter 4. There's more of it. Chapter 4, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble Share, partnership, same word. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Well, these letters are not only about Paul's partnership with churches, they also hint at his partners on the ground. There are about 12 different people in and around the Apostle Paul around this time. He calls them his fellow workers. It's guys like Luke and Timothy and Tacitus and Mark. Mark, remember Mark was the cause of Paul and Barnabas parting ways because they couldn't agree on whether to take him on the next missionary journey. That's back earlier in the book of Acts, a long time ago. Well, here's Mark with Paul, at least at the time of writing Philemon. So all this relates in very relevant ways to us today. It has to do with the, with the going with the gospel to places where Christ is not known as well. The, the, the giving and the supporting of those who go among those of us who stay. It has to do with the praying for the gospel going forth in our region and elsewhere. Encouraging each other, showing hospitality, meeting needs. All this is related to partnership. Third, there's suffering for the gospel in these passages, these books of the Bible, there's much suffering for the gospel. Paul doesn't complain about his suffering, but he does openly talk about it. He talks about it because his readers already know, they're already concerned, and he wants them to understand it and not be shaken by it. So listen to Philippians 1, verse 12, or turn there. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me my trials, being shipped to Rome, awaiting trial in Rome, my imprisonment in Rome, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard is about 10,000 Roman soldiers a new guard would be chained to Paul about every four hours in a rotation. I don't know how many sat right next to him, chained to him, but many did. And some went and told others, and they went and told others, and they went and told others. And before you know it, in less than two years, Paul can say, the whole imperial guard knows that I'm here because of Christ. 
Man, what an opportunity. And that just doesn't happen apart from imprisonment. Philippians 1 verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment not only has a penetrating effect inside the Roman guard, but it also has a penetrating effect outside in the church where brothers and sisters see Paul imprisoned for the gospel, awaiting trial, possibly to be executed, and they think, yes, this thing is worth living for, this thing is worth risking for, this thing, if necessary, is worth dying for. It made them more bold, not less. Well, we could talk more about suffering for the gospel. It's littered through these epistles, like just Colossians 3, when Paul says, Remember my chains. Don't forget, he's in prison. The gospel's worth suffering for. Fourthly, there's the spread of the gospel. Heavily related to the suffering of the gospel is the spread of the gospel. We've seen that at the end of Acts, and now we've already seen it in Philippians 1 as the gospel spreads among the, the Roman guards as it spreads outside among the brothers and into their communities. The gospel is spreading, not in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but actually through it and because of it. And so Paul asked for them to pray for more of the gospel spreading. He was a greedy gospel guy. I mean, he, he, he had open doors, he had fruit, and he just wanted more. Look at Ephesians 6. Notice how the themes overlap. Now we're talking about the spread of the gospel, but it's with Paul praying and asking for prayer. Ephesians 6, verse 18. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Or towards the end of the Colossian letter, Colossians 4, verse 3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. We already know he has an open door. He wants a bigger open door. To declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in, pr in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now we could also think of our mission to get others to come to believe in Christ, to plead with them. If you're not a Christian, you're here, you might be sort of suspicious. You might be starting to ask yourself a question similar to that of King Agrippa who asked Paul, are you trying to make me a Christian? And Paul said, yep, and everyone else, without apology. We believe it's true, and we believe the alternative is hell. It's a loving thing to want to tell you, and to want to tell you fully as quickly as possible. We're sorry for any time we've done it in a clumsy way. We're sorry for any time 
our conduct has seemed to contradict what we're saying, forgive us. We're not perfect. But we do think that this is true. We want you to know it. We want you to come to believe what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 7, that in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption, freedom, a purchase, forgiveness. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace by his blood. By his blood. This is the gospel. We, come, we pray that perhaps today you'd come to believe it and put your hope in it. And join us in following Christ and living out his commands. Fifth, there's the protection of the gospel. I'll be quick with this because I haven't timed this message very well. As I said, I don't normally do these kinds of messages. But if you're looking for the protection of the gospel, Colossians is your book. Not every book of the Bible does the exact same thing. In Philippians, for instance, though it's primarily a thank you and an encouragement to that church, it also does other things. It, it, it rebukes two old ladies for not getting along. But in Colossians, it's clearly written to protect the gospel. Apparently, Epaphras, who was from Colossae and a leader in that church, had come to Paul in Rome, and apparently he had told Paul, a scary report about false teaching in their neighborhood. So you can read Colossians 2 for yourself. You can see the warnings. Let no one, let no one. Don't you, don't you go there. Don't you think that. He's pointing out error. He's showing what's wrong. And if you read Colossians 2 for the first time, you might be scratching your head thinking, I don't really get the danger. I actually haven't met this person who believes this or teaches this. I, I'm not tempted to, to buy into asceticism and the worship of angels. Well, but notice what Paul's doing. He's, he's lovingly and directly pointing out where they, these people, could veer from the truth. And what that means for us today, maybe especially for pastors, is we've got to be able to spot what is veering from the truth, and we got to be able to point it out to the church and talk about it and contrast it with error. We have to protect the gospel. That's one of the reasons why the prison epistles are there. Someone has said, why do writers write? Well, it's like dogs that bark. Dogs just bark. Yeah, but writers often write because there's a problem out there. Dogs bark. Our dog, anyway, barks because someone's out there, and she doesn't like them. Well, Paul, he picks up his pen every now and then, and he's got to just write some stuff down because he sees trouble outside the gate, and he needs to bark and warn his people. Six, there's instruction in the gospel. And here's where Ephesians stands out. It's more of a general letter. It has the purposes of a wide audience. It's for broad and deep instruction, not so much written to address a problem as to simply instruct the church about what it needs, about what it has, about who Christ is, about the plan of God, about how to live in the second half of the book of Ephesians. And Paul says, here's how to live in the church, here's how to live in the home, and here's how to live in the world. I wish we had time to delve into these matters, but don't miss the broader point. 
The church needs instruction. You don't need what you think you need. You don't need what you want. You need what God's word says, and it has instruction. The actual shape and purpose of the letters show us what churches need and what we should talk about. Seventh, there's this theme of being transformed by the gospel. We could consider the transformation that comes in the gospel and with the gospel from a number of different perspectives from the pastoral epistles, from Paul's conversion in Philippians 3, or, or what he says the Ephesians once were but now are in Ephesians 2. The gospel transforms, and Paul talks about it a variety of ways. He even shows it with his joy and with his love for these people. But I want to do something from the one letter that we haven't talked much about, or at least less than the others. Philemon. Turn to Philemon. You've got to skip a few books. It's after First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Then we come to Philemon. Here's the backstory to Philemon. You can piece it together yourself just by reading it a few times, but I'll just tell you what it is for the sake of time. Philemon was a wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae. The Lord had saved him. There in Colossae, he seems to be something of a church leader. At least he houses the church in its meetings. Unlike any Roman wealthy man, he owned slaves. He owned a slave named Onesimus. And one day, Onesimus split. We don't know what happened, but he left and he went to Rome, and he may have taken money with him from Philemon. Whether he knew Paul before getting to Rome or not, we don't know. It doesn't matter. Eventually, he's in Rome. He's heard the gospel. He's saved. He's been at Paul's side. He's been serving Paul under his house arrest. And at some point, Paul has to bring up the sticky situation. Not so much that Onesimus is a runaway slave who needs to go back but that the two, Onesimus and Philemon, are now brothers in Christ and they need reconciliation. So Paul sends Onesimus back to his former owner with this letter. After some very nice and warm introductory words, in verse 8, Paul gets to the heart of his short letter. Verse 8, accordingly... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So likely he got saved under Paul's ministry there in Rome. Verse 11 Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while 
that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Do you realize how countercultural this was? Do you realize how otherworldly this was? A slave who fled could face charges if his owner got a hold of him again. He could be killed. He's done wrong, apparently, somehow, in some way. And Paul just says, forget the wrong. If he's got debt, Bill me. I'll take it. Put it on my tab. But receive him back. Receive him back, not as a slave, as a beloved brother, as a family member. Receive him as you would receive the Apostle Paul. Oh, that, that, that's pretty fancy receiving. You, you get out the nicest plates when Paul comes over. Paul says, I could command this. But I'm not going to. I want you to do it freely. I want you to get it. I want you to see what the gospel does. And Paul makes this connection explicit in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And sharing of your faith in that verse does not have to do with telling the gospel to non-Christians. It has to do with the partnership of the gospel. What we share, I want that to become effective and to blossom into the full knowledge of everything good that is for us in Christ. I want you to understand now what he says in Colossians 3. There's no longer Jew or Greek or Scythian or barbarian or slave or free man. All is in Christ and Christ is in all. Full forgiveness, full reconciliation, nothing less will do with this gospel, with this Jesus who is uniting all things in him and he is turning things upside down in this world that don't fit with his kingdom and slavery doesn't fit in case you didn't know. Oh, I know Paul's not explicit, condemning slavery. Oh, but he sure makes it hard to lean into his words and keep Onesimus a slave. He makes it impossible. Paul says, no longer a slave, but a brother. Yours forever transcends even this world. So Philemon and Onesimus, we don't hear the rest of the story in the rest of the Bible, but I picture they reconciled. I picture that Onesimus ate at Philemon's table as one of his children. It reminds me of 2 Samuel 9 where Mephibosheth, the 
the, the crippled son of Saul ate at the king's table forever. He didn't deserve it, but it was all according to grace and mercy and, and covenant. And so we come to a similar kind of table today, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, a table of grace, a table of the new covenant, a table where around gathers all kinds of different people, all kinds of differences among us. But we've been reconciled to our God and hence reconciled to each other. And so we come as one. We come as sinners. We come as saved. We come as the adopted. We come as gospel partners. The partnership, the sharing that we have in the gospel, it's otherworldly. And it's ours. This is a picture of Jesus' torn body and spilled blood in the breaking of bread and in the cup of the wine. 